The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Although you may not know it, if you're a good Kiwi, you're interacting with today's guests, companies app, many times a day, every day. Rush are the makers of the COVID app, brought to market in crisis response speed and iterated and improved on to the point that it's been adopted by the NHS in the UK and it's in use in both New Zealand and the Cook Islands. It's not unusual for Rush to have their work overseas. They count Google, Disney Plus and Microsoft as customers for their digital and technology offering. Their CEO, Pavan Vyas, has grown the company fourfold to nearly 100 in the team. He joined from a background in big four consulting, venture investing and study at Oxford University. To talk the journey, international success and what's next, CEO Pavan Vyas joins us now. Tenakwe, thank you for being here. Kia ora, great to be here. Hey, so take, take me back. How did you first get in to the technology world? So we've got to go back right into the 1990s and um, being an immigrant into New Zealand in the early 90s, um, I was quite a insular, almost isolated person. And the experience was, um, uh, you know, in the 90s when there were not many immigrants around, uh, it was quite isolating. So what my parents decided to do is get my sister and I a computer in 1994. I still remember it as if it was yesterday. It was a little PC Direct Dream Machine 3. I think it cost an arm and a leg for the time. They spent $3,000 on it and they said, here you go, go, go use it. And of course, there were no manuals. There wasn't the internet or social media to enable a young child to use a computer. So I just started making friends at school, which liked computers and that became my little social circle around gaming, around building computers, around um, swapping content on floppy disks. <laughs> so that was quite a interesting way to make friends. And uh, clearly, um, uh, as uh, a, a typical brown parent does, hey, what medical school are you going to go to, Pavan? And I said, well, actually, I want to become a computer programmer. And my parents were initially um, uh, taken aback by it. Huh, you're the first person in the family who doesn't want to be a doctor or something. So that's cool. Um, and, and just so happens I studied doubly hard at, univers- at, at school to get into university. And I was in um, Auckland University, second ever 
computer systems engineering intake, and that's where it all started seriously for me. And I started sort of coding seriously and applying to internships around the world as I progressed through uni. And that's actually how I got my start in tech and uh, lived through it. I lived through the dot com bubble and birth cycle during and slightly after university, and, and I loved every moment of it. <laughs> and like, this is not to make you sound like a, a really old guy, because you're not a really old guy. But you know, what was it like being in the heady days of the dot com boom? You know, like right now when people go, "Oh, the market's overvalued and it's nuts." Right now, the average uh, price to equi- uh, earnings ratio on the S and P five hundred is about thirty. In the dot com bubble, it was about two hundred, so five times as crazy as today for for some kind of reference. But what what was it like being in such an exciting world and being a technologist? It was absolutely crazy. I remember joining a, a family funded startup as employee number one straight out of uni called Photo Junction, and this is around a time where professional photographers were picking up. Um, digital cameras and shooting weddings and portraits for the first time. They had no idea how to run their studio using digital, right? So we had this software product which um, we were trying to sell for $150 a year uh, globally and we ramped up to thousands of customers that were using our product. And what was it like? Uh, uh, you know, One day, randomly, the uh, CEO of the company got a call from Apple and they say, hey, we've been tracking your stuff and uh, we're coming up with a new operating system and, and we want to um, back your technology. So, you know, uh, we got flown flown up to Cupertino um, and introduced to Apple. And uh, it was uh, just crazy, right, just going through the experience. And even back then, New Zealand companies were um, challenged to play on the global scale. We just didn't have the funding and the ecosystem down here to enable those sort of, those sorts of partnerships to kind of really flourish. Um, so I wish almost the dot com bubble happened when uh, New Zealand tech had a bit more maturity, uh, because two or three generations of startups later, we would have been a different um, scale tech ecosystem if that were true. Yeah, with all that capital washing around, yeah. being able to. Yes, even if everything blew up, it, it left kind of the foundations for everything that came after, didn't oh, it? Oh, completely. I mean, it changed um, people's mindsets around technology and, and the ecosystems, which ended up taking a bit of a punt on this stuff. Uh, I feel New Zealand wasn't brave enough back then because the markets were still assessed from a let's keep a local perspective versus actually what can you achieve on a global scale. And that's only just started to happen in the last sort of 10 years. Oh boy, like, you know, five years ago, if you asked a business uh, expert what they thought about zero, they'd tell you it was mad that it was losing money, you know, the general the general kind of voice in the media. You know, once things are successes, people take it all for granted, don't they? But um, yeah, <laughs> it's Absolutely. a hard run. And tell me about the choice that you made when, um, when the next financial crash happened after the after the dot-com boom, the, the, the GFC happened. What was your choice to go back and study? Yeah, so uh, interesting story. Um, after Photo Junction, um, you know, I was around my mid-20s, and by that time in my life, uh, particularly growing up uh, you know, in pre-teen years, I'd visited about 30-odd countries with my family. And I'm, I had this itch, like I had to go for a global career. So... Um, 
my wife and I, we, you know, packed our bags and uh, took a one-way flight to Europe. And um, we landed right in the middle of the financial boom in the mid-2000s in London. Um, and it was silly money being thrown at technology in London within banks and wider financial services. And I kind of uh, rode that wave in terms of understanding the language of business and understanding how technology is delivered at scale within within enterprise. Um, and then the GFC started happening. And I had clients such as Citigroup, Bank of Scotland, um, and a couple of other mid-tier English firms. And uh, the best of them needed government funding, and two of them actually stopped trading. And that was, um, you know, a, a baptism of fire. I really kind of understood how uh, fragile these ecosystems are. Uh, and uh, at that point in time, I started thinking about actually what I want to do with my life long term. And blending technology with business um, was something that I really wanted to uh, do. So I went to Oxford, got a MBA, one-year intense business degree, and uh, to this day in my career, it's been the best year of my business life, actually. It's, it was a fantastic experience, and I learned a lot from other students and the wider Ox Oxford ecosystem. What was it like? You know, the phrases in the language like, you know, you can bank on it. You know, the idea of banks as being especially the biggest banks uh, with hundreds of years of history behind them in the UK. The idea is that they can't fail and that they, they're the most stable things there are. And what was it like to be working for them and then to be having a front seat to this financial crisis that was so centred in the banking system? Um, Simon was very elitist, actually. The, the British banking um, circle was very old boys club, very networked. And it was really difficult to break into those traditions. And um, what I loved about the GFC is even the playing field and, and the boom that we're seeing in neobanks and uh, customer-led uh, uh, financial institutions is actually uh, fantastic. You know, that's not perfect, but it actually has shown the world that, uh, you know, power to the people. Um, and I remember vividly coming out of um, Oxford and joining uh, Deloitte, uh, some of my colleagues were starting to work with a new bank called Metrobank. And Metrobank had been at that point in time the newest entrant into the British banking market for around 100 or so years. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the UK hadn't given out a new banking license for about 100 years. And since the last 10 years, they've had uh, actually given out tons of banking licenses. And, uh, you know, um, those startups really shook the ecosystem and better for it. That elitism in the city and the financial world and banking and stuff, <laughs> jumping out of that into Oxford, <laughs> what, what was the Oxford experience like uh, doing an MBA there? As, um, you know, from far away, you get these, these ideas of rowing and, you know, uh, toffs and um, <laughs> Brideshead Revisited or something. But what's it like now? Um, it hasn't changed much, to be honest. So uh, one of the reason I, reasons I chose Oxford is I wanted a bubble to escape in and a bubble that would allow me to just concentrate on figuring out where the world's going and what my role in that world should be. Um, and Oxford is great. I did all those stereotypical things like, um, you know, road for my college, which was one of the third oldest colleges in Oxford. 
uh, as well as you know uh, took every opportunity to put a black tie and a white tie on at times. So that was fantastic. But I think what sets Oxford apart even today is they um, the research that they do and the thought process the university does is you know what's hap- what's going to happen in the next hundred to a thousand years, and how do you set up students to think about that world uh, um, right now? And that's absolutely what um, uh, the Said Business School is all about. You know they uh, uh, they have a philosophy where you know business is for betterment of society and uh, and humanity. So um, so how do you blend? Concepts like social enterprise, together with uh, you know traditional banking and consulting fields, to to make businesses of the future more resilient to the waves that are going to happen in society. And then you jumped into Deloitte, as you said, one of the big the big four uh, kind of firms, and consulted around the world to do exactly that to help businesses face those challenges of the future. What's it like being a consultant working in one of those environments? It's a pretty massive uh, learning experience. You know, I hadn't had um, any business consulting experience before, and then I was uh, you know, shoved into the Deloitte experience, and I allowed myself to do that. And the first year was really tough. You, know, you had to go on planes to visit customers that were facing into some pretty sheer um, uh, problems post-GFC, um, and they were trying to figure out how to reconfigure their businesses to uh, survive and thrive post-GFC. But what I really enjoyed uh, about the consulting environment is you have the opportunity to look at every problem using first principles. And as an engineer, I was quite good at doing that already, uh, albeit I had to kind of use the language of business. Um, And and I think um, it's the first time in my career I really saw the power of diversity within Deloitte and London particularly. Um, and, and that diversity, when you assemble it, uh, actually can uh, think about some amazing problems. Problems like um, the largest uh, bank in the UK was working with us to figure out what happens if the next crisis um, uh, comes and um, the bank becomes insolvent. How do you still keep trading so that there isn't a run on the bank, for example? And and those kind of problems uh, needed quite novel solutions that we uh, thought about and advised uh, these companies, um, yeah, particularly well. And coming to New Zealand, uh, what I really enjoyed is um, uh, New Zealand business is uh, a lot more generic compared to larger markets. So you'll find. CEOs of New Zealand companies uh, move around industry sectors quite easily, uh, and and it's because we have a mindset around uh, leadership, and uh, we don't lock ourselves into any particular corner. Uh, so, as a consultant in New Zealand, it allowed me to really experience a wide array of problems, everything from understanding how to, uh, how a, f- a fisheries industry works. Uh, and also, I was one of the handful of people that helped uh, take Novapay out of the news back in 2013, <laughs> uh, uh, whilst advising a top four bank in New Zealand what their 2020 strategy might be. So it was quite a bit of diverse experience. And um, uh, yeah, consulting, uh, I'm quite thankful I spent almost five years in it because it allowed me to be quite flexible uh, in uh, uh, the variety of problems that face up into business uh, today. 
Yeah, and it's such a privilege to get to kind of, uh, you know, spend some time in an industry and learn about how it works and, uh, you, you know, kind of almost um, be a tourist in another person's world for a while as a consultant, isn't it? Absolutely. And that, that idea of, like, how do you stop people doing run, runs on banks, it's kind of like, um, you know, the visceral problem of, of capitalism, isn't it? How do you keep the confidence up as it's all it's all just shared confidence that keeps the system going? <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, so, and then back in New Zealand um, and, and, and moving into, yeah, venture picking is really interesting. What, what, what got you into um, working with Sky and investing in ventures for them? Um, so I started working with Sky um, around a time where it was quite evident what was happening globally. It's just those waves hadn't hit New Zealand. So Netflix wasn't in New Zealand yet. Um, uh, uh, NZ Me hadn't gotten into video, um, things like um, uh, Lightbox from Spark weren't launched, and um, you know Sky still had a very traditional um, set-top box business. And when their executive team reached out and say, "Hey, would you uh, want to join the company? Because we've got a lot of media people, but not many people from outside who can actually look at the company critically." Um, so um, soon after I joined, uh, I was fortunate enough to go to um, the Silicon Valley and LA with most of the board and some of the management team of Sky, and it was fascinating. Uh, you know, that one trip over a week opened a lot of eyes and ears uh, around the Sky executive team. And then when we came back, we um, uh, started having some. R- you know, radically honest conversations about what might happen to Sky New Zealand and what, and what some of the defense mechanisms would be. And I was, I personally was really passionate about, and still am passionate about, large New Zealand companies needing to develop global business models, uh, you know, beyond New Zealand, because otherwise the clock is ticking. So one of, one of my passions, which was technology startups. I convinced the board of Sky to say, okay, let's start investing in early stage media tech businesses. And the question shouldn't be, what can they do for Sky? The question should be, what can Sky do for those companies? So one day, there's a media tech ecosystem, which is global, in which Sky is playing from New Zealand. And we had some fantastic opportunities to invest in some really amazing models, both here and Globally, and um, it's uh, it's it was one of those points in my career where uh, I made up my mind that I want to go work in a tech business one day, and uh, the opportunity came sooner rather than later. And what was it that attracted you to Rush? Which at that stage, when you got involved, was quite a small agency, twenty odd people, and um, you know, working on kind of digital and gaming projects is where it had um, it had come from. What, what did you see as the opportunity there, having been, you know, working in very senior roles in very big businesses? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. So um, by this time, I'd worked for Bulge, Bracket, Banks, Fruitu, being an employee number one in a startup uh, is how I started my career. So I had experienced that entire spectrum. Um, and when I met uh, 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 some of the tech teams, including Danua, founder and CTO, uh, it became evident what special talent Rush had in terms of engineering. From my engineering days, I could absolutely pick really good engineering talent. And it was almost like the company was solving some really 
interesting technical problems, but those problems weren't uh, solving the right business or societal problem. Um, so uh, I, I joined Rush uh, with a vision to help aim it to towards some really big global problems that might uh, come up from time to time. And of course, uh, to do that, a, an organization uh, needed a few more capabilities, uh, right? So the first couple of years at Rush, we just got relentlessly focused on reconfiguring the business for that and adding to the great engineering talent other skill sets such as amazing uh, uh, custom experience design and UX, UI, as well as product mindsets. And, and uh, you know, the rest is history. And that's what's enabled us to uh, grow so quickly over the years is uh, the relevance we bring to our customers who are thinking about reimagining their business with the use of technology. And with websites and, you know, people's online or companies' online presence now being the first interaction for most people with a company, you know, people don't necessarily go walking through shops. <laughs> they have their first experience, their Instagram, for example, or they don't ring up a customer service person, they jump on the website. That digital offering must be so key to, you know, every business's uh, yeah, future plans. How do you, when you're talking to businesses about their future plans, sell to them from New Zealand? You've got people like, you know, Microsoft and Disney Plus and Google on your books. And, you know, how do you talk to these people who are the leaders of what they do in the world and get them on board as a smaller company from New Zealand? Yeah, it's a very good question. And sometimes um, it's not one thing. Um, so what we've uh, developed over the years is a really fantastic reputation, particularly for projects which um, are about blending the physical world with the digital world and, and using things like cameras to understand uh, how the world um, or what the world is around a particular setting or using really bleeding edge technologies like uh, you know VR in 2013-14 and AR well before uh, things like Pokemon Go came to market. So uh, within those large organizations and networks, uh, you know, uh, the uh, reputation that the company has has been fantastic and a large part of our business is about word of mouth um, uh, as well as us over the last few years really investing in the brand and the value proposition and uh, getting invited to global industry events that we uh, quite often uh, speak to and feature at. Tell me about the COVID app project, as that must have been, you know, a big a big thing to be able to step in and do to help everyone in the spirit of um, everyone pulling together to to combat COVID. Uh, but also a huge undertaking. I mean, I think a lot of people look at an app and they just see kind of the front end and a couple of screens and go, it can't be that hard. But what do you have to actually take into account when you're making a piece of critical health infrastructure that is designed to be used multiple times a day by five million people all at once? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, I guess um, uh, to kind of dive a bit deeper... Uh, the reason we got involved in uh, uh, in thinking about how do we solve uh, the problems which might eventuate when COVID finally comes to New Zealand was um, 
because of our purpose statement. You know, we're a very purpose-led company. Our purpose statement is we design technology to better serve humankind. And then uh, places like Wuhan and Italy in the early days started uh, going into lockdown. We started thinking about you know, how can technology potentially solve this problem. Um, and we developed a whole bunch of prototypes, including testing and tracing technologies, as well as business continuity uh, platforms, uh, particularly designed for the pandemic or the, or the pandemic that wasn't there yet. Um, and, and that took a lot of guts from us, right? We, we basically um, told a bunch of people in the company, hey, stop doing what you're doing, apologized to those customers that were, uh, we were slowing down, and, and ring-fenced our teams to, started to, to start working on this problem. So to answer your question, the unintended consequences of the technology you build, uh, you sometimes don't find out until um, the technology is out there uh, at scale. Uh, we were lucky in that we started thinking about this stuff well in advance of New Zealand going into lockdown and well in advance of New Zealand getting its first case. Uh, so by the time we had these prototypes and um, the cu country went into lockdown, we could actually test it and really understand uh, through human-centered design and those kind of techniques um, what people care about uh, and, and what were people really worried about. So things like trust and privacy and security uh, were first-class citizens in everything that we designed. So, um, you know, if everyone that hopefully uses the COVID Tracer app on a daily basis is scanning the QR code, um, that only is possible if they feel uh, and, and know that their data is secure on their device. Yet, if there's an outbreak, which they're which they're part of, uh, they can share that data for the betterment of the entire country. Um, and, and to design a platform that can work like that at scale uh, was a monumental effort by the team, which designed it and and and, and built it. And so when you decided to kind of get ahead of uh, the game, you saw the problem coming and you wanted to do your bit to start solving it. Was that, did you just do that on your own as a business before talking to the government or how did you go about that? Did you take them something that was pretty much done and go, hey, you should you should do this? Well, how does that work? We knew that it would be really difficult to convince the New Zealand government that we were onto something. Uh, if if we didn't have anything to show them. So we put in way more effort um, to ensure that the prototypes that we had developed uh, were really polished and uh, were scalable uh, so that by the time, um, you know, all the, the, the technology professionals within government got to look at what we've done, we had that sense of credibility. And not only that, we could... Um, uh, we could demonstrate all the public health experts that we had spoken with, not just in New Zealand, but in places like UK and in some cases, uh, even some places that had gone into lockdown well before to, to give evidence that, you know, we've actually built this thing uh, by, by doing a whole bunch of research. And research when the pandemic is only a few weeks old was, um, uh, I think, what set our solution apart compared to compared to some other things that were out there. And so there was a chance that 
no one would have picked it up. That, Absolutely. That the COVID card that was being talked about might be the solution and that it might have just been a, um, a skunk works project at Rush that never, never made the light of day. But instead, it ended up becoming the solution here and being picked up by the NHS. How did that feel? Yeah, that's um, uh, one of the proudest moments in my life for sure. Um, yeah, so the NHS uh, had invested, uh, uh, you know, tens of millions of pounds in an app which was all about centralizing citizen data to track COVID. Um, and, and, and that got thrown out because of public, um, public outcry uh, up there in June of 2020. And then uh, uh, we got a cold call from um, the uh, Department of Health and Social Care, which is NHS parent body, uh, to jump on a call. And the strategy they were going to take is now uh, lift and shift the best of breed solutions from around the world. And they also wanted to implement QR code technology, which is decentralized in the UK. And uh, 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 New Zealand had successfully um, you know, evaded uh, uh, further lockdowns and mass community spread. So they were happy to go with New Zealand tech because it has proven that it works. Um, and, and it was a matter of weeks that we delivered the solution up there. And uh, uh, Earlier this year, in 2021, we received a call again from the NHS and uh, it was the Alan Turing Research Institute which had verified that our technology had helped save, I think it was 600,000 infections in the UK, which probably meant around 6,000 lives saved, given the ratios. So um, it makes me immensely proud of the work that we did, uh, not just in New Zealand, but in the UK. That's so cool. And what, what kind of platform does that give you for, I mean, you've, you've built the company to be 100-odd people now, and, uh, you know, it's been, been a growth journey over the last kind of five years. Um, and, and that idea you had from the beginning to solve some global problems from New Zealand with this company, what kind of platform does this adoption by the NHS and this uh, success at scale give you? Yeah, it opens up a world of uh, possibilities. And one of the things we need to get really good at is uh, to be a bit more focused in the things that we choose to do. Um, so we're looking at a number of possibilities. One is to, um, uh, whilst we've been doing amazing projects for the likes of Microsoft, Disney, and uh, the health systems, um, we've been also investing a majority of our free cash flow in this um, platform, which we're calling Our Vision. And it's a platform that we've designed to uh, make uh, computer vision really, really easy to to do uh, um, uh, and, and then create amazing custom experiences of the back of that. Things like pay-by-plate parking or uh, saving and uh, tracking and saving Maui dolphins of fish. There are only 63 uh, uh, up and down the coast of New Zealand. Um, so uh, one, one opportunity that we're looking quite seriously at is to scale this technology out uh, and, and aim it at really large, globally relevant problems, uh, as well as uh, open up uh, rush in offshore markets, uh, as in when uh, 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 we are in the mid to later stages of um, the pandemic. Uh, we believe that we've only just begun. We're still a, um, 
small and ambitious New Zealand company, and and uh, we would love to be uh, in a named alongside the likes of Zero and Rand one day to uh, th- those companies that have achieved the um, goal of positively impacting you know millions and tens of millions of people around the globe every day. Tell me about your personal mission around helping move the country more generally to a knowledge economy. Yeah, so you know, going back um, um, to the start, uh, I, if I hadn't had access to a computer early in my life, I probably wouldn't have uh, taken a software um, and technology route, right? And it's been an absolute privilege and a leveler um, um, uh, to, uh, you know, do the work that I've been doing over the last 20-odd years. Um, so I, I want that opportunity to um, be given to all New Zealanders, right? Um, and if you look at um, countries uh, generally, the, the top two um, industries in every country uh, actually benefit the whole country. And then it's a bit of a long tail. And technology is a, a probably number three at the moment compared to uh, our larger agri uh, and primary industries. So um, uh, uh, m- my mission is to make sure the whole country benefits from New Zealand being a knowledge economy. And so what I do with Rush is effectively in the middle of the bell curve. And what I, what I, what I do in my spare time when I do have spare time is I work on the edges of that bell curve, right? So I spend a lot of time in the early stage startup ecosystem working with, advising, and in some cases being on the board of early stage tech companies uh, to help them get access to capital as well as talent. Um, and then also I'm uh, uh, starting to spend a lot more time in the other side of the spectrum where you know, technology is uh, not even distributed evenly. Uh, you know, So one of the uh, organizations that I'm uh, uh, on, on the board of is an uh, organization called Take Two, and it's all about teaching um, uh, uh, students in the prison system how to develop software and and how do you make and how do you scale that out so that when these people come out, you know, uh, they and their whānaus and their communities benefit from it. So um, yeah, really, it's the mission around um, uh, uh, exporting knowledge versus exporting just goods. Um, um, and when you export knowledge, the advantage you have is um, you can choose, uh, you know, where you play. Versus if when you export goods, you can you can't necessarily always choose who the buyer is. <laughs> so, or you um, get into mad situations like you export raw logs and then have to wait to import them back in as uh, as timber you can use and you get into the spot that we're in as a city old country. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, bananas. Um, and as a, as a kind of fi- final thought, um, you know, you've had a year of, you know, in, in amongst some very um, hard times of, of the pandemic, but of real global impact, you know, amazing success on some measures. What will success be for Rush and also what will success be for you personally? Yeah, so um, we always talk about, you know, how many lives have we impacted positively uh, in the last 12 months. And in the last 12 months, that number's, you know, tens of millions. So um, our number one objective in the company is to get it to 50 million positively impacted lives in the next 12 months and then beyond that hundreds of millions. So that that's how ultimately we'll measure our success as a company. Um, and for me, uh, it's about getting uh, myself to a place where I can actually really uh, spread the impact that you know I'd like to make on this country. 
um, and, and, and globally. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, more meteor problems to solve would be fantastic. Ah, that's so cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story today. Uh, lovely to chat to you. That's CEO of Rush, Pavan Vyas. Kia ora. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jonathan Pierce for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound and brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.